Hi everyone, this is Ida Josefina and you're listening to Reverb by Sane. A few lines of housekeeping before we get into today's episode. It's been a minute since the last one came out, but we've got a number coming out now this summer. So keep a look out on new releases. For those of you new to this podcast, you can subscribe at sane.fyi to receive new episodes in your inbox. With each one, we also include a list of reading recommendations from the guest in question. In other news, Sane is also now officially live in beta. You can sign up on our website, sane.fyi, and start building thought spaces. As a reminder for those of you unfamiliar, this is a new product we've created from a conviction that the internet should ideally be a place of curiosity and collaboration rather than ads and outrage. We wanted to build a place that really inspires deep thinking and feels like an extension of our minds that's responsive instead of being reactive. So we built a tool that allows people to collect, connect and share ideas in a way that supports depth, awareness of association and also feels nice and playful. So I hope you guys give it a go and let us know what you think. The first 1000 users will have Sane free for a year. And now for today's guest, I am extremely pleased to say that I'm speaking with Dr. Anders Sandberg. Anders is a senior research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute in the University of Oxford. His research at FHI centers on management of low probability, high impact risks, societal and ethical issues surrounding human enhancement, estimating the capabilities of future technologies and very long range futures. Topics of particular interest to him include global catastrophic risk, existential risk, cognitive enhancement, methods of forecasting, neuroethics, SETI, transhumanism, and public policy. Anders is also a fellow for ethics and values at Rubin College, Oxford. He is senior Oxford Martin fellow and research associate of the Oxford Euro Center for Practical Ethics. I hope I pronounced that one correctly. The Oxford Center for Neuroethics, the Center for the Study of Bioethics in Belgrade, the Institute of Future Studies in Stockholm, and archivist for the UK SETI Research Network. He is on the advisory boards of number of number of organizations and often debates science and ethics in international media. Anders has a background in computer science, neuroscience and medical engineering. He obtained his PhD in computational neuroscience from Stockholm University, Sweden for work on neural network modeling of human memory. In this episode, Anders and I discuss the very big questions of the world. We talk about his recent paper on collective intelligence, where we go into examine what collective intelligence really refers to, how one could approach the subject and its necessity within the fabric of society when thinking about healing society and building po a positive future. We also talk about optimism, existential risk, existential hope, and the inner inspiration within all of us to imagine grand futures. Recording this episode was an absolute delight for me. I hope listening to it delivers similar results. As always, let me know what you think. Now I bring you Dr. Anders Sandberg. I'm here with Anders Sandberg. Anders, I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you. Welcome. Thank you, Ida. Uh, I love to be here. Cool, amazing. So we could get started with talking a bit about your academic background. Um, maybe you'd like to give us a short summary and just explain your overall points of interest. So I usually describe myself as an academic jack of all trades. I know a little bit about everything. I'm one of those scattered uh, students who wanted to study everything and drove my professors nuts, of course, because I couldn't keep to one topic. 
Basically, it all began because I was very bored as a kid and read all the available science fiction uh, in the local library. And then I realized I probably need some science to make that real. So I've always been very future-oriented and I picked up a broad range of sciences and then I found myself at university and I started taking courses in computer science and mathematics. That's where, where I kind of got my main degree. But I was also involved in uh, looking at virtual reality. I got the interest in computational neuroscience and started work on neural networks before they really worked, before they were cool, before you could get a six-figure salary by working with them. <laughs> and I got out of the field uh, long before that happened too. But that was, of course, a good reason for me to study some neuroscience and some psychology and even a pinch of medical engineering because I got interested in the idea maybe one could make interfaces from, the brain, from computers to the brain. And then I realized, oh, that was really hard work, so let's work on something else. So over the years, I amassed a lot of very different topics. And Eventually, I ended up in philosophy, which is probably the natural uh, centroid of all these vast interests. And and what what is, what is your position today? What do you do today? What are you what are you studying? Um. So these days, I'm senior research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute, uh, which is part of a philosophy faculty of Oxford University. And I find this very funny because I only have high school philosophy as my formal philosophy education, and yet I'm here at a philosophy faculty that's really world class. But of course, what's going on is philosophy is that area of thinking that is trying to structure the things we don't know, the general topics we have not yet got a good structure for. And then it can sidle up to almost any other topic in science or society yeah, yeah. and link up to it. So I'm very much of a generalist. So my work here started when I got hired to work on the social and ethical impact of human enhancement technologies, in particular ways of improving human cognition. So that's how I arrived in Oxford in 2006. And then I realized this is an awesome place to be. So I kept on working. I started working on questions on global catastrophic risk, but also uh, questions about how to reason well about the future. And uh, then various other questions like, what can we say about future technologies? Which ones are likely to cause trouble or great uh, potential? And can we do something to steer the great carriage of our civilization in the right direction? Yeah, um, that kind of goes into what I wanted to ask you next, but maybe you could give a, a short sort of explanation or definition on what global catastrophic risks um, mean, uh, what is the sort of field of, uh, field of existential risk studies and, and future of humanity? So people have been worried about the end of the world uh, for a very long time. It's part of every culture, more or less. But in most cases, it's window dressing. It's not like it's seen as a practical problem. That kind of changed as science advanced and we realized that we were a species among others and could go extinct. And uh, at 1945 we realized, oh, now we have uh, powers that could probably devastate our own species or make us go extinct. It became an actual political issue. But the field itself emerged as a field of study only in the late 90s and early noughties. Nick Bostrom wrote this very influential paper where he defined existential risk as something that threatens the survival or potential for Earth-originating intelligent life. Basically, mm -hmm. if that happens, the future story on, uh, of, that started on Earth will have an end or will turn into some tragedy. In that paper, he was also bringing up smaller disasters, mere global catastrophic risk. So they're global in scope. They would affect everybody. 
they're probably also going to have repercussions lasting for generations, but they might not be permanent, and they're very, very severe. Existential risks, they are the ones that affect all of the future, and uh, they're just uh, too, too bad. You can live with a global catastrophic risk. We can imagine, let's say, a disaster that kills 10% of humanity. That would be a tragedy. It would be in all the history books forever. At the same time, yeah, so 90% would survive it. Uh, they would, might be crying, they might uh, be grieving for generations. This might change the course of civilization, but you can live through it. But you yeah. rather avoid that disaster from happening. Even if a nuclear war doesn't mean the end of the human race, it's still a terrifying possibility and we don't want to have one. We have lived through one pandemic uh, recently and that was no fun. Even though we at the Institute quite often point out this is kind of a dress rehearsal for a scary pandemic. Covid was bad and killed uh, tens of millions of people, but we can foresee much worse possibilities. We don't want to be unprepared for that. Yeah, and of course there's a, a very large distinction between um, any disaster that affects even up to 60% of 70%, 80%, 90% of people, 99% of people versus a disaster that affects 100% of the people, um, as it would mean that there is no future as well for all of humankind. Uh, uh, but maybe... Just, uh, sorry. Uh, it's ahead. interesting to note that that distinction between something that affects everybody and the most people seems philosophically to have a very big importance. It might be that uh, there is an order of magnitude or a difference or something even greater. This has been argued by many philosophers like Derek Parfit and Nick Bostrom. Yet in practice, of course, we really want to avoid any kind of big disaster. If it's beyond a certain scale, we must do everything we can to avoid it. And there are very subtle philosophical questions about where the badness lies in the very biggest disasters. So the good philosophical questions. But at the same time, we also want to solve the practical question. What do we do about it? Yeah. And how, how, do the, how does that field actually approach GCRs versus existential risks? Like, are they actively divided and separated uh, when thinking about these potential problems or are they sort of like grouped into the same bucket and approached in similar ways? A lot depends on whether you're coming from it from a kind of theoretical, philosophical standpoint or whether you're a practitioner. Uh, I think we on the more theoretical side quite often uh, make a lot of hay about the important distinction between something that really threatens all of the future versus just merely is an enormous disaster. At the same time, from a practical standpoint, I think one doesn't need to make a great uh, difference. Even uh, if you say that many of the elaborate philosophical reasons for why an existential risk is so much worse than a global catastrophic risk, the practical loss of if 7.4 billion people died, all of in the Earth's population, that's already unimaginably large. That's an unimaginably large tragedy, even if we don't count future generations, even if we say that uh, the injustice to the future is done. So, in practice, many people who are worried about actual concrete things, they don't really care about the distinction too much. Right. Uh, and I think that is fair. I think one should be aware that there are some deep issues but they don't matter very much. Uh, they might matter if you have this enormous hard choice, like, oh, maybe we need to sacrifice 90% of humanity to, to save the remaining 10. 
but most of those choices, if you're ending up there, you have already kind of lost. Uh, there are better ways probably of averting disasters much earlier. We want to do the, the things that prevents us from ending up in tragic uh, losses or situations that would, would make great drama. Yeah, which is probably a good segue into actually talking a little bit about your position. Do you want to summarize the position that you assume or your sort of worldview within this and your ideas of maybe existential risk versus existential hope and what you kind of imagine for the future of humanity? So often in interviews I get asked, so what's your top uh, five uh, risks and a rattle of uh, good ones, uh, nuclear war, <laughs> and biological risks and, and uh, emergent non-aligned AI and uh, the systemic disasters and unknown unknowns. And after talking enough about that, usually the journalists then ask me, but Anders, how can you sleep at night when thinking about these absolutely horrible scenarios? And my slightly smug answer is, of course, well, I'm have this illusion of contra. I'm trying to contribute something uh, and I'm thinking I'm making things better. But the deep answer is, of course, I'm very much of an optimist. I think maybe there is something like 10% uh, uh, risk that uh, we go extinct or have some other existential disaster. That still means 90% chance that we're going to make it. And I actually think that the future is potentially very bright. So a lot of my work is not so much on the risk themselves, but rather, how do we get to the good outcomes? Yeah. This is, of course, the opposite of existential risk. This is what Toby Ord and Owen Cotton Barrett term existential hope. The future could be much brighter than we expect. So normally when we think about the future, we tend to extrapolate a little bit like the present. We add a few of the science fiction tropes like uh, some flying cars. We might uh, worry about that there is more pollution and uh, climate change. But it's still a fairly recognizable future. I arrived at this whole discourse from the world of transhumanism, where we're discussing ways of upgrading humanity and technological singularity and all sorts of ways where the future can become radically different. And the intellectually honest reaction to that uh, is, of course, to realize that mm, then it could perhaps become radically worse. So it's kind of natural that a lot of transhumanists who are generally extremely optimistic about the future then say, oh, and there are these threats that can be really weird and most people don't even want to think about them because they're weird. You don't normally talk about AI as a risk factor in normal, uh, polite uh, conversation. Maybe we need to deal with that because they would rain on a really wonderful uh, futuristic parade. So you both want to be optimistic about the future because if the future looked really dark or dull, then there is no point in trying to save it in the first place. And you also want to be a bit optimistic that we have a chance of doing something. If history is just this set of vast forces and individual agency doesn't really have much of an effect, in that case, it doesn't matter what we do. What will be, will be. But on the other hand, if we have some agency, then there's a good reason for us to really work hard and try to make the future brighter, try to figure out a way of avoiding some of the potholes uh, on the road to the future, and try to make sure that we don't drive off the uh, off-ramp towards some dystopian disaster. And I think this, what you're talking about here, has a lot to do with collective intelligence. I know you recently wrote a paper on collective intelligence. so. I'd like to talk about that a bit. Maybe it would be useful to define what collective intelligence means and you could provide some context around what the paper was about. 
Yeah, so, so this began when Wiki Yang, my co-author at the Santa Fe Institute, uh, contacted me. We had already been in touch uh, since I gave a talk there about global catastrophic risks as a complex uh, problem. The Institute is very interested in understanding, after all, complexity. And it turns out that many of these risks are complex systems. So here is a really important domain for complexity researchers to learn how to control. And she was interested in collective intelligence, which is a slightly hazy topic. Finding a really strict definition is quite hard. Normally, we tend to say something like, we have individual agency and individual intelligence in humans, but a group is able to do more than an individual. A group of people is able to think, in some sense, collective thoughts uh, that might not be possible to represent in a single brain. A famous example is, of course, that nobody in the world knows how to make a microchip. In order to do that, there is a lot of very different technical skills that need to come together, and uh, you need these vast organizations to do it. Indeed, it turns out that nobody in the world probably knows how to make a pencil from scratch either. We have this division of labor, and that allows us to do amazing things as a technological civilization. Of course, this collective process happens to some extent even among ants. Anthills are very popular among collective intelligence researchers, where you have simple rules among the ants that allow them to collectively do things that the individuals can't do. It's interesting to notice that quite a lot of uh, what's going on here is that you aggregate sensory experience in many individuals. They react to that and send that over to others. There might exist representations of knowledge and skill across the whole collective, and, and then that gets applied in the right way. Now, in practice, of course, this can be done by humans in a lot of very, very different ways. The collective intelligence might, in some sense, be one of the secret uh, tricks we have to run this planet. As a species of large mammals, we're not that physically capable. Mo most chimpanzees are stronger than humans. But we have various tricks, and it's not just that we're intelligent. Chimpanzees are fairly intelligent too, but we can think about things that are not present. We're very good at representing imaginary things or possible futures. We also got language, so we can tell each other about our imaginations. And then we can form a collective intention. We can sit around the campfire and discuss uh, having a hunt tomorrow. And we can discuss a strategy, we can discuss uh, how, who is going to do what and what the teams are. And we can even discuss how we're going to divide the spoils at the end to make sure that it's fair and that we're not going to get into a quarrel. And then next morning we set off to, to do the hunt. And to a watching chimpanzee, this would be almost magical. These humans, they're spread out and they do things, sometimes in teams, sometimes individually, that just make things come together in the right way. And at the end, they might actually not have a big quarrel about how to share the food. They're just sharing the food in a way they set up to do before. This is very unique. There are many other species that do great swarming and schooling and flocking. But they don't really form that much of a collective intention. We can set up an intention. We can even have an argument about what the proper intention should be and so on. And we even have languages for that and we can come up with imaginary social institutions for deciding on who's right and wrong or taking turns, etc. Many of these things exist among animals but have to be reinvented individually again and again and again. 
We humans just tell each other about that. We tell stories and we teach the kids, this is how you run a meeting. This is what uh, the tribe is about. This is the corporate DNA. This is the scientific method. So where does the, where do things fall apart? Or when do things stop working? I mean, what you've described is, is, is it sounds like it's sort of the, you know, what what is this already essential to human societies and to human nature? And we've kind of naturally built up these mechanisms that allow us to uh, collaborate and cooperate even at global scales. But obviously we're quite far from being in an ideal position talking about global catastrophic risks, existential risks, most of which are very man-made risks. So where does this idea of collective intelligence sort of fail? Like, what, what is that gap between now and what would be sort of an ideal uh, way of existing, collaborating, and building societies in which collective intelligence was so smooth and so high that we, we wouldn't be in the position of even thinking about this field of study? Yeah, I think part of it is, of course, individual stupidity. Thinking about what other people think and handling the complexity of the social world is really tricky. To many of us, uh, it's a daunting task and very stressful. And uh, many people just fail at figuring out what would be the right action. Even though we have all agreed on the plan, somebody fell asleep and missed out some crucial details <laughs> who didn't care. Um, that is a real problem because uh, some plans are very sensitive to some people not following the rules. And that, of course, makes them also rather bad plans. You might want to make plans that work well when the rules are not followed. And that gets into this very important thing about scaling. Plans that work well in a small team might fall apart in a much larger team or across a vast society. In the kind of caricature in the ancient Stone Age tribe, there was maybe a hundred people around. And we generally know how to socially deal with about a hundred people. We, we know them by first name, we know their strengths and weaknesses, we know some of their quirks. If we're surrounded by a thousand people, we can't rely on that anymore. We need to build other structures. We invent various formal structures, we come up with name badges at the conferences, we come up with formal rules, we set up courts and judges. That helps a little bit. We might set up uh, various institutions to deal with it. But the scaling is tricky. Scaling up behaviors that work really well in a family to a society doesn't work. So while it's kind of easy in a circle of friends to share resources uh, in a fair manner so everybody gets it, if you do try to do that the same way in a society, you're just going to get a disaster. You need to do things differently at a different scale. Another reason why this doesn't work is that sometimes our motivations are different. So I might certainly want to help the tribe, but I also want to get food. So I might want to have a little bit more food than I maybe should have for the good of the tribe. And so does every other tribe member. That means that there is a bit of competition. There is the individual versus collective. Which is, of course, why we have so many formal rules and norms and the moral ideas trying to negotiate that. Much of our morality is really getting us as individuals to function well with other people in the tribe or the society. And again, many of these problems scale badly. Uh, the rules that work well because our mother is present and uh, told us uh, what uh, is fair doesn't work very well when she's not present and there is a million people and I can maybe defraud the 10 million people on the internet and nobody's going to be the wiser. 
at that point, the temptation might actually make me do a bad behavior. So we have various problems with these scales. For example, one phenomenon that I've been investigating with Nick Bostrom and others is what we call the unilateralist curse. If there is something that uh, can be done and affects everybody, like uh, spoiling a movie or uh, unleashing a uh, or uh, modified organism into the environment or uh, launching geoengineering to change climate. And many agents can do it, and it's enough that one of them does it so you get consequences. Even if all the agents are totally well-meaning and try to do what is the be rationally best, uh, when they individually consider this, somebody is likely to be the guy if you have a large group. If it's just one agent, it's fairly likely that the decision is going to be the right one. But if you have a hundred agents, it's fairly likely that somebody is going to slip up and think an, a bad idea is a good idea. If it's a million agents, of course, somebody is always going to be that guy. So you need to create institutions to handle this. Part of it is understanding what the situation is. So you can tell people about the unilateralist curse and say that in situations like this, you need to be much more conservative than it seems to be rational. And you can do that, but it's intellectually uh, troublesome. It might be better to set up an institution that in situations like this, we all have to go to the world court and put our evidence together and decide jointly what to do. Yeah. And that is part of collective intelligence. A lot of collective intelligence these days are embodied in institutions, where it quite often also get hijacked by special interests or that the institution uh, start to build bureaucracy to be more effective. And before you know it, the bureaucracy is running the institution and that original purpose got lost in the paperwork. So what do you think can be done here, thinking about this from the perspective of having an optimistic worldview when it comes to our future, meaning believing that society can be cured, that it can flourish, that our society could transform into something that isn't as full of risks as, is it, as it is today. So I guess my question is, do you have a kind of theory of everything? What are some practical potential ways of, of restructuring the world, perhaps not immediately as of right now, but to work towards in the future? For example, when thinking about local regions, nation states, larger regions and, and global governance. And also, maybe this is a good time to bring up the work you're doing with your upcoming book on grand futures. Do you explore these ideas there? And how do you see the relationship or balance between thinking about practical steps we can take now and the very utopian fantasies of world order we may have in our minds? Wow, that was an amazing three-pronged question. Uh, each of the, the, the parts would probably be a podcast on its own. That's true. But we could do a series, an entire probably. season with Anders. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think they do link together. So I'm very hopeful because we actually have seen this am amazing growth in coordination and ability to solve problems. Uh, so think about our pandemic response. That was not terribly impressive. Except, of course, that to people in the Stone Age, it would have been amazing. People across the world learned about a risk within a few weeks. And then they started finding solutions and distributing solutions and using technologies that the Stone Age tribe could not even imagine, but also doing coordination. Imagine the scientific community. Here you have these competing research groups, many of which are competing for the same grants in very different countries, speaking different languages yet sharing information effectively. Suddenly, Google DeepMind pops up and says, we don't know whether our alpha-fold simulations of protein folding in the virus are useful or not, but here they are. 
Uh, you have publications spreading, people developing vaccines, people testing vaccines. This is a collective problem solving that was happening at an amazing pace on a global scale involving a large number of people, many more people than that Stone Age tribe could even imagine how to get together at a big meeting. And that meeting would be chaos because they, they would not be speaking the same language and would have very different interests. Yet this was just a demonstration that mm, we can do these things. Similarly, many of the other responses to COVID, while not always great, we could coordinate across society because we have systems for public health, we have an educated population. We had people inventing cool tools, including some very simple ones like washing your hands properly. Early on, it became clear that we should be doing much more hand washing. How do you motivate people to do that? Well, you make little songs or mnemonics about how to do it, uh, and then you spread them as meme across the internet. <laughs> this is also a form of collective intelligence, although it doesn't quite look as grand as scientists uh, making a vaccine. I think what is going on is that we are getting better and better at coordinating. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're great at coordinating for just good things. Many of the most frightening and horrific things humanity have done has been coordinating for war. The closest we have gotten to and wiping ourselves out was the Cold War, where because of a natural interest, the Soviet Union and the US developed very deadly arsenals. And they ended up in this weird equilibrium situation. Nobody really intended to risk the future of humanity. That was just a regrettable side effect. So sometimes coordination can go really, really badly wrong, which we of course see in the form of organized criminality and many other things. Yet I'm rather hopeful about this because we're getting new tools. When people started uh, print, uh, printing, you could enable the modern form of parliamentary democracy. It was not possible before because if, in order to run a parliamentary democracy, you need to have a population that is literate. You can't do that without printing ABC books. Uh, you need to be able to send out the party manifesto so people can read it and respond to it. And even once you had that, it still took centuries to develop many of the tools. Certainly committees existed before. The Republic of Venice had some very elaborate committee structure, a voting structure that some parts have been reused in other ways. People invented tools of governance and some of them turned out to be very useful. Uh, so you might have uh, checks and balances, which turned out to be an amazing trick. So we developed these tools over time. It just took a tremendous amount of uh, time and uh, brain power and sometimes very hard political or physical fights to get it done. So we are getting better at this. We're getting better at coordination. We're also getting better at various forms of collective intelligence and aligning people's motivations. One of the beauties of many market solutions is that you get people's selfish motivations to align with doing something people want to do. Insurance companies, for example, handle the fact that we individuals don't want our houses to burn down or our cars to be crashed. That's very bad for us individually. While on average, of course, a certain number of houses and cars uh, get lost uh, every day, but it averages out. So to an insurance company, it's easy to pay out, which is very good for us. And we're on the other hand paying insurance premiums at a regular pace, which keeps the insurance company rich. And both of us are motivated to have fewer car crashes and fires. That's a beautiful example when values align. It doesn't always go like this. And again, we're spending a lot of our politics and trade on figuring out how to do it better. So my book project, I call it Grand Futures, 
it's really about what can we expect if we get our act together and survive in the long run. So I'm basically trying to measure how big the future could be. Where are the outer limits on how wealthy we could be, how sustainable, uh, how sustainable our civilization could be, how long-lived it could be, how far we could travel, how far into matter we could control things, how much competition we can do. Basically, how much good could there be in the future? As you can guess, it's a kind of extensive project. I've been working on it for a few years, and the book manuscript is well over a thousand pages and weighs several kilograms. Wow. So I might need to condense it down a little bit. But the cool thing here is it looks like we're very far away from most of these limits. We have a chance of actually becoming much wealthier. And some of that might be because of purely technical and engineering issues. Some of it is, of course, better ways of coordinating, better ways of running economies. There are ways of becoming safer, sometimes by being more cautious, sometimes just by spreading out the risks. Uh, and overall, I think collective intelligence plays an important role here, because we're not going to get there unless we have good tools. Because running a very rich, complex society requires both observing what's going on on an enormous scale and noticing stuff going wrong quickly and fixing it in an adaptive way. And that includes things that are going wrong in ways nobody had ever expected or thought before. You need to come up with a new way of doing that. And then spreading the news that, oh, we need to fix this. We discovered there's a hole in the ozone layer or a comet on the way to Earth or that the vacuum is not as stable as we believed. And then finding solutions. This is, of course, just what open societies are trying to do today on Earth. In an open society, people argue that various things are wrong, and if enough people agree that, yeah, that seems to be wrong, let's fix it, you can change the society. This is why authoritarian societies have an actual serious disadvantage. They can't talk about it. The citizens might notice things going wrong, but it's bad for themselves to mention that to the tyrant. So the tyrant is not going to be told the truth about how things are going until it's too late. Unfortunately, that usually means that it's not just the tyrant, but everybody else who suffers. I do think that we have a chance for a very glorious open future here. Uh, the problem is, of course, it's hard to describe because it's so rich with so many possibilities. Uh, if we were to describe our current world to our Stone Age ancestors, they would want to know whether we had a warm place to sleep and a lot of food and felt secure. And certainly we succeeded very well with that. But we might also want to say, yeah, and we know so much. We have science and the, the various forms of organized religion and sport and entertainment. And some of these things our ancestors might have been able to understand. But many of them would not even have made sense because they don't work in that little tribe. They only work on a bigger scale. And many of the really exquisite things that we create today might not have made sense even a hundred years ago. And similarly, I would expect that in a thousand years or a million or a billion years, we're going to find things that are totally unthinkable to ourselves right now. Great sources of value that are really worth going for but we can't even understand what they're about. Absolutely. But I've reflected on this issue a lot and, and particularly from the perspective of, of existential risk, looking at the sort of information ecology uh, and, you know, what kind of information do people have access to? What is the sort of like state of the media and news? Like what, what, what are people consuming? What is the main message? And the main message 
more often than not seems to be disaster. Things are terrible. The world is in a complete awful condition. And that, I think, makes it legitimately very difficult for people to want to engage with the world and to engage with uh, a possible future because it is just one big sort of doom scroll, basically, wherever you go on the internet. So I worry a lot about um, how we can sort of create better information infrastructures, especially digitally, that allow people access to several different things, both sort of like on a softer side and on a, on a harder side. On the softer side, I think it's really important to create um, tools and create mechanisms for people to sort of become more um, curious and to be able to develop better critical thinking skills all around the world that will allow them to sort of be able to play with information, play with ideas, and to imagine something different than what the algorithms are feeding on a constant sort of daily basis to you. And and then also from sort of like more institutional, um, institutional perspective to really spread this message of, of existential hope. It's, it's quite um, overwhelming to think about how much there is that sort of like looming idea of disaster can strike at any moment in time in the media and how much space any kind of idea of existential hope or something positive happening or people being empowered to actually do something to change something to work in something um, exists. So I'm very fascinated by your book project uh, and being an aid for people to imagine grand futures, reflect on what exists in those futures and what we could do to start building them, especially in catalyzing thoughts on how individuals individual people could contribute in their own ways. But I wanted to ask, how is this book structured? How did you initially start thinking about it? Is it thematic or what approach did you take there? And what elements have you included in the project? So, so the project started on a Dutch beach uh, in a hailstorm uh, a few years ago. I, I've been at a visioning day uh, organized by uh, Finke School of uh, Leadership uh, in Amsterdam. And they uh, had this day where they brought uh, all the students to the beach to think about how to, their own projects and brought in me to be the hand-wavy futurist. And I listened to a talk about finding your vision and then I was taking a walk on the beach in a hailstorm and I realized the way I could be useful to the world is maybe giving this big vision that there is hope for the future, but uh, there is something to aim for rather than to run away from. And then I started taking random notes on what should be in that book. So over the next few weeks I was filling my notebook with a lot of different topics and then I started organizing them and I started getting a sense of this grand structure. The first third would be about our current predicament, uh, what's wrong with the world and what do we do to get out of it. Then the middle one would be what does a maturing civilization do? And then the third one would be the ultimate limits. And then conclusions, what do you do based on this? And then I did something that was very helpful. I asked my friends and colleagues, uh, I gave them my sketch of this and asked them, does this make sense? And they all more or less said, cut out the first third. The book about what's wrong with the world and what to do about it, that's a very important book, but it's a book on its own. It's a kind of a vast project. So I only started working on, let's assume that we're out of our current uh, problems. Which of course sounds terribly utopian, but it also allows me to focus actually on one domain. 
Meanwhile, Toby Ord started writing his excellent book, The Precipice, which in many ways is that book about our current predicament and uh, gives some good ideas and has this fantastic last chapter, which is basically the one chapter summary of my book. <laughs> So what I did with these other chapters was I organized them by different topics. So it was very hierarchical. So it might start with a chapter about, well, post-scarcity societies, how rich can we become in various ways. And then that chapter would, of course, contain both economic questions, what is actually scarcity and post-scarcity economics, but also questions, okay, how much can we produce? What are the limits for production? which in itself then falls apart into questions. How does production work? Where does molecular nanotechnology come in? Why do I think this actually can totally solve the problem? I need, uh, of course, energy for that, so that's another section in that uh, chapter. So I started digging down hierarchy. I essentially got this gigantic tree diagram where I figured out what needed to be where. And then I just started filling things out. At first I had this idea, let's start with that easy chapter in the middle and uh, finish that and then contact the publisher. So I, uh, uh, while the publisher is mulling over whether I can write this book, I can work on the others. That didn't happen because it started spilling over to the other chapters. Because of course there's a lot of cross-referencing. But I have this very hierarchical approach, which works well for what's basically a very academic book. I'm not exactly expecting millions of people to buy this one because it's going to be heavy, it's going to be expensive, and it's full of equations. Uh, there is that old joke that every equation you have halves the number of readers, and I would be very happy <laughs> if I got any reader given the number of equations I ended up with. But I want to write the popular book after that, and if somebody really doubts that I can move a galaxy using a lot of aluminium foil, then I can point them at the relevant chapter in the first book. This is the big book I'm working out, the technical details, which means, of course, I'm getting lost in endless footnotes about exactly how much carbon is there in Kuiper Belt objects and exactly what can we do to deal with interstellar and intergalactic dust, which is a big problem if you want to travel very fast across the universe. And then you want to have all those details and be able to take a step back and ask, so what? Where does this lead us? And one of the obvious conclusions is what Nick Bostrom already pointed out in his famous Astronomical Waste uh, paper, that the future looks so bright that we need to be very careful not to lose it. We might uh, really want to even abstain from doing some uh, things because they might be risky. We might actually have to be a bit more conservative than we would like to be. This is super annoying to me individually because I want to get to the future as fast as possible, but it might be a good idea to be careful so you don't lose it because you do something stupid while we're still on one planet in one fragile biosphere. Um, it also turns out that that argument, when you formalize it, is, hinges more on the length of the future than the goodness of the future. Time is very cheap right now. We're at the earliest stages of the Stelliferous era. So we're still before peak star. It's going to take some 10 billion years before we get the maximum number of stars shining in the universe. But then it's going to decline and go towards red dwarf stars over the next trillion years. But still, we're in the earliest part of the history of the universe being lit by stars. And if we play our game well, we can survive the stars. There are energy sources that are not based on starlight, uh, like uh, using black holes or matter conversion. Which means that actually the history might just have started when the last star sputters out. 
which is a kind of awesome thought. But if the future is that potentially long, then we actually can afford to delay things a bit. There is another clock ticking, and that is the expansion of the universe. Basically, the galaxies seem to be running away from each other faster and faster. So if we don't start settling remote galaxies relatively soon, any billion years now or so, then we're going to lose a lot of them. But that still means that we have a rather slow clock to, uh, for starting to settle galaxies. And that might give us another reason to think through what we want to do. Because there are some interesting philosophical and ethical issues we want to hash out rather well before doing that. The most obvious thing to me seems to be, oh, we should be paving the universe with life, complexity and intelligence. Let's turn it all into a gigantic computational garden or whatever. There are some people who immediately get chills when they hear this and say, no, 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 one planet is more than enough and uh, all that stuff is bad. But there are yeah. also people saying, this sounds risky. A planet full of jungle, that's going to contain a lot of animals suffering because uh, there is a lot of dangerous things out there. Maybe the total amount of suffering in a vast universe with a lot of sentient be uh, beings, that is what counts. So that big universe you're proposing, Anders, might actually be much worse than a single planet uh, with a normal biosphere. This is a deep philosophical argument that we better resolve before we start spamming the universe with life. And that leads to this interesting issue of we might want to solve our big existential risks. We might also want to resolve our biggest uh, ethical uh, arguments, which might turn out to be very hard to resolve, or it might be that we can reach good agreements and even do moral trades. Uh, because I think some stay at homes but just want a mere sustainable utopia and none of that weird galaxy moving stuff. Can totally feel at home in a universe where the weird galaxy movers are doing that, but to some other galaxy that you don't have to see in the evening sky. I think yeah. there are actually ways of doing this kind of coordination, which again sounds really weird because international coordination right now, that's the United Nations and a bunch of treaties. That seems rather weak. But 300 years ago, the United Nations would have been a, this utopian dream. What? Could all the kings of the world get to the diplomats together uh, to discuss things jointly? That's preposterous because the sailing ships are not fast enough. <laughs> we cannot solve both how to transport diplomats fast enough and also that you can actually make an institution that sometimes does good coordination. We can invent something better than the United Nations. Once upon a time there was no United Nations, then we got the League of Nations, then we got the United Nations. We can probably invent something even better. We don't even have to wait for the United Nations to decide that they are going to become their own super version. We might start inventing other forms of governance on the internet and other institutions and start promoting them and say, look, we demonstrated this on this scale, maybe this scales up well. Yeah, actually, that, that, that does. I was thinking about a question earlier when you were speaking about um, sorting out our sort of ethical questions and arguments and seeing if we can get on the same page with some of the most sort of difficult ethical um, arguments we're facing. So do you see a path of being able to solve those and then uh, creating that sort of unanimous um, backing for any given idea that we have? And does that relate with the existing institutions like the UN um, or, or do you see that sort of, you know, academic philosophical side developing in another place where actual decisions are being made, or, or is there like an is there is there an active correlation between the two? 
Uh, and I'm actually, sorry, sorry, I'm going to add to that, because also in your paper you're talking about, when you talk about collective intelligence, you're talking about uh, it being more of a transdisciplinary perspective rather than interdisciplinary field, um, if, if I remember correctly. So maybe you could also explain the distinction between those two and, and why it is um, why it is specifically a transdisciplinary perspective and, and why that distinction is actually important considering, um, considering your ideas of collective intelligence. Yeah, uh, so, so the interesting problem uh, here is that making a transdisciplinary, uh, let, let me try to restart this. <laughs> uh, uh, what makes it transdisciplinary? Well, you want to have the tools from different disciplines uh, and they need to latch into each other. So economics, for example, has this wonderful set of incentive management uh, ideas, and they have me methods for uh, creating incentives uh, to do the right thing. Political science knows a lot about how people actually function politically. Complexity theory is good at modeling abstract systems. You have the practitioners of various disasters who actually know a lot about how people actually respond to uh, real disasters, which is quite often very different, it turns out, from what uh, uh, what people actually know. Okay, so uh, I need to close that window. I'm getting super distracted. Yeah, <laughs> I can oh, hear no. the background. No worries. Okay, let's try to redo this. Um, yeah, so basically uh, there is a marina and somebody was testing their, uh, their boat engine. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay, uh, back to trying to answer your question, which was quite rich. Um, the, the um, interdisciplinary work means that you take people from different disciplines and they might be interested in each other's work and uh, they work together to create something collective. That is the simplest form of collective intelligence in some sense, but, but every individual knows the stuff. When it's transdisciplinary, the team actually knows things that the individuals don't know. Uh, you get the disciplines latching into each other in new interesting ways. And this takes time, this is hard, because you need to know of the other people involved. A political scientist needs to have a sense of what they can trust an engineer to solve. The engineer needs to understand roughly what the political scientist is aiming for, even though they might not be working on the, uh, the same question. But the really tricky part is the practice, because our brains or even our collective brains are rather small compared to the actual world. So we actually need to test things out. A lot of the big uh, disasters in planning today happen because people think that they're smart enough to control a complex system. And then they set up a plan, and then they just lean back and expect everything to go according to plan, and of course disaster ensues. You constantly need to be interacting with the world, see, are we on track, are we getting there, do we need to change things? Even ask the important question, are we the bad guys? Yeah. If you don't ask that regularly, uh, then you're probably almost by default a bad guy. But the really interesting part is, of course, you then can actually start building up the parts of systems that actually solve real global challenges. And that involves both prediction, noticing potential risks or sensing that things are going wrong, uh, but also that very keen sensing of, okay, now we need to start the plan we already agreed on beforehand. And you also need the adaptation, because when things are going wrong, it's good to have a plan B if your first plan fails. 
And you probably need a plan C because plan B might actually fail. And a plan D and E and F. My father, who was a pessimist, taught me this. And then he told me, and when you get to plan F, of course, you still have to improvise. But now you understand the domain you have been dealing with because you've been doing a lot of plans on how to respond. You actually have some idea about what options you have. Still, reality is going to surprise you, but we're kind of smart and adaptive beings. And if we also set up things so we kind of uh, tilt the probabilities in our favor, it's so much better. If you have a decentralized system, well, centralized disasters are less likely to hit you. If you have a lot of individuals that can take up the same role, again, the group might survive losing a few individuals. If you have mechanisms that filters out bad information, that means that you can handle the fact that there is noise in the information. If you have people running red team exercises, figuring out what would a bad guy or somebody trying to sabotage for us do, and can we counteract that? That makes you a bit more ready when you get uh, somebody trying to scam you or trying to manipulate the organization. So I do think that we have quite a lot of transdisciplinary things to do here. But this requires a lot of the practitioners of the behavioral sciences to get involved with the people working on global catastrophic risk and collective intelligence. Right now, these are three pretty separate communities, but they shouldn't be. Most problems require interested people to come together. I don't think we can say all these three communities should just join hands uh, right now and uh, work together. That's not going to work. There are many people in nuclear disarmament who shouldn't be bothered with this stuff. They should be working on their nuclear disarmament because we're good at that. There are many people in behavioral science that are working on other problems that matter. After all, we need to fix depression and make ourselves happier too. That's also yeah, kind exactly. of important for making the future good. Indeed, yeah. in my book, uh, the, in the chapter on post-scarcity, uh, I start out by talking about material post-scarcity, and then I get uh, sidetracked into questions about services. But the most important part is, of course, happiness post-scarcity. Can we make a world where we're actually feeling very happy, very fulfilled? And, and I think that without that, we're not going to be particularly keen on the on materially post-scarce world. So, yeah. In solving these problems, that's going to be a tremendous amount of work and it's going to take time. But I think partial solutions quite often work also. Demanding the perfect solution, that never works because it never arrives and uh, reality tends to ensue long before that. Yeah, it's interesting. I was recently having a conversation with someone at, at CSER, which is Cambridge's Center for the Study of Existential Risk, about this subject and how it kind of all boils down to like our individual happiness and understanding of self and the ability to cultivate compassion towards our fellow human beings. And, and that's kind of actually the root and the starting point for anything bigger than that. So it goes all the way from one individual human being to, to thinking about global governance as a whole. So um, it really is just should be like one big melting pot of all of the different disciplines if you are thinking about the future of humanity. I, I would find it hard to imagine anything besides that. But I know that we're running out of time here, so I just want to ask you one question. If there's people listening to this episode and getting a bit overwhelmed, um, potentially very inspired, uh, hopefully feeling a, a spectrum of different things, and thinking about like what is it that an individual person um, can do to contribute in this stage of, of world affairs that we're currently in, uh, and thinking about this question particularly from the perspective of existential hope. Do you have anything to comment or share on that? 
So, so one of the most hopeful pieces of information I learned when I was taking a course on natural disasters some years ago was that when there is a disaster, most people who are physically saved by somebody uh, or uh, medically treated are not being uh, saved by uh, a fireman or treated by a doctor. They're getting saved by their neighbors. Uh, when there is a disaster, there is this image that people are becoming super selfish and uh, they're rioting and grabbing resources. Uh, and that sometimes happens, but it's rare. There is a myth of mass panic that actually quite a lot of decision makers have and make them think that, oh, if there's a disaster, we first need to send out the police to stop their uh, looting. Usually people are extremely well behaved in the first few days of a disaster. After a few weeks or months, things start to fray. We saw that with COVID. At the start, people were very compliant and the, work, the social cohesion was great. It was just when people were starting to lose hope or got, getting real annoyed with various aspects of responses when things started to fray. And I think this is a very hopeful story. We actually have a power to help each other, both from a kind of practical resiliency standpoint. If you want to, to survive a disaster, it's not so much stocking up on uh, conserved food and toilet paper. Uh, it's actually getting to know your neighbor and being friend with your neighbor. Then we might say the same thing applies on larger and larger scales. You actually want parts of the system to work well together locally because that gives a lot of resilience. You also want to think critically about what could go wrong and what could go right. Right now we have a situation where the media are telling you doom and gloom all the time. And, it's a, and then they're also not giving you anything practical to do. Because the way of fighting climate change is not so much uh, to uh, try to, to remove uh, transformers from the wall plugs. That's not going to change things. Uh, you can maybe reduce things by traveling a bit less and become a vegetarian, but the real solution would be to change the energy system and uh, the food system uh, at large. That's not something any individual can do. We can put pressure on politicians and we can think about solutions. Similarly, many of the big disasters and risks the way around them might be to figure out good forms of resiliency and putting uh, pressure on, find solutions. And similarly for opportunities. And I think this is where we really have a chance because it's so neglected. It's so rare to uh, actually get, give pe people are given agency about the future. We should recognize that we have that. Uh, I'm coming from a background in computer science, and computer people have this wonderful hubris that they can create entire worlds in the computer. If I don't have a program that does what I want, I can write it if I'm not too lazy. I can make <laughs> what I need. The same thing is true for engineers. They, in some sense, uh, also get the same hubris. Yep, if this doesn't exist, I can start building it. And this is, of course, true for social institutions, too. We actually have quite a lot of institutions and norms that we make with our neighbors, in our companies, in our podcasts. We can invent entirely new kinds of institutions and we don't have to ask for permission. In fact, asking for permission is one of the most dangerous things ever because it's usually the interest of whoever can give permission to say, no, wait a minute. And that usually stops any innovation. No, let's innovate first and apologize later. That doesn't mean that all innovations are good. We should be watching what works and what doesn't work and then do more of what worked. And we might even have to bicker quite a lot because we might not even agree on whether that was a good idea or not. But if, I think the future, just like society, should be open. 
we should recognize that we want to keep it open. We don't want it to collapse in on itself. We don't want to have just one single solution. And that means we need to point out what's wrong and suggestions to how to fix it. Engage in those really annoying discussions, but gradually get together enough consortia of fellow humans to get, create those shared intentions. Just like around that campfire where we're thinking about the hunt tomorrow, we might say, okay, we should get together and fix this problem in society. Yeah, the politicians seem to be part of it, so we need to circumvent them, them maybe. Maybe there are other solutions here. And I do think we have a pretty good shot at a grand future. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm feeling really inspired and grateful to be alive. So um, yeah, thank you so much, Anders. Thank you. This was so fun. <laughs>